Just a quick note before we begin. There's a great event coming up on May 16th in Freehold, New Jersey. As of now, the run is still on. The event coordinator is monitoring the coronavirus closely, and I will share any update if things change within the next two months. But if you're in the area or plan on visiting, check out the Marine Corps Run for Freedom 5K. This event was organized by Marines, and proceeds will go to the Marine Raider Foundation, the Semper Fi Fund, and the local Marine Corps League Detachment. It's a great event, and I'll be there, so come say hi if you're in the area. If you're not a runner, there will be an after-party with $1 drafts. If that's not a good enough reason to show up, I'm not sure what is. Visit MarineCorpsRunForFreedom5k.org for more details. I've included a link in the episode description, and we'll share the event on Facebook and Twitter at Marine History, and on Instagram at History of the Marines. Now let's get into some Barbary Pirates. Welcome to episode 38 of History of the Marine Corps, To the Shores of Tripoli, Part 3. Our last episode followed some intense battles. After the capture of the Philadelphia, Preble called for volunteers to destroy the ship and render it useless for the Corsairs. This heroic battle was heard around the globe and helped regain the support from American citizens. This episode gets into Eaton's plan to attack Dern and restore the rightful heir to the throne. We'll talk about the march from Alexandria to Dern and discuss the first wave of battles. The Marines shine during this battle, and it's clear why the words, To the Shores of Tripoli, are memorialized in the Marines' hymn. Thanks for joining. Now let's talk about the history of the Marine Corps. Our last episode left off with Americans attacking the Tripoli Harbor. Preble developed a phenomenal plan, and Decatur was able to carry out his part of the strategy with great success. Despite Preble's great progress compared to his predecessor, he received word on August 7th that his time leading the fleet was over. Naturally, he was devastated. Preble organized attacks to burn the Philadelphia and attacked the city that resulted in successful campaigns with minimal casualties. His relief wasn't due to negligence. He was simply replaced by an officer that was his senior. Preble decided to stay in the area until the new Commodore arrived. He continued with his mission and launched multiple attacks on Tripoli. The same day he received word of his replacement, Preble sent gunboats to the northern part of the harbor and catches to the west of the city. The main target was the Bashaw's Castle. Gunboats, with the support from the Argus, Nautilus, Enterprise, and Vixen, bombarded Tripoli. The Tripolitan shore battery held its own, and they provided adequate defense against the American attack. Lieutenant Somers, serving on gunboat number one, sidestepped just in time to get out of the way of one of the defensive cannonballs. As he ducked, the cannonball shattered the flagstaff near him. Another Tripolitan cannon scored a direct hit on the powder magazine of one of the American gunboats, causing it to explode. The explosion killed 10 Americans. Midshipman Robert Spence somehow managed to survive the blast. He was launched in the air and landed back on the floating remains of the ship. 
Two of the Marines who died in the explosion include Marine Private Nathaniel Holmes and Sergeant Jonathan Meredith. Three days before Sergeant Meredith's death, he served on a gunboat with Lieutenant Tripp. Meredith, Tripp, and eight other men formed a raiding party and boarded a Tripolitan vessel despite being outnumbered 5-1. to one. Their tactic was instant offense, and Meredith charged at the Corsairs. During the battle, one of the pirates was charging towards Tripp. Sergeant Meredith was able to step in the way and finished off the Corsair with a vicious bayonet thrust, pinning him to the deck. The Marines in the squadron performed their mission magnificently. The bombardment leveled some of the buildings close to shore and caused damage to the Bashaw's castle. By 1830, the attack was over. Preble continued small attacks on the city three more times before he left and launched his final attack on September 3rd. It was a risky attack. He filled the Intrepid with explosives and called for a group of volunteers to take the ship on her final mission. The crew was to sail into the harbor and detonate the ship near the Bashaw's castle. 15,000 pounds of explosives stuffed the ship, and hundreds of fused iron shells, combined with iron scraps, acted as shrapnel. The crew had 11 minutes to get off the boat after they lit the fuse. At this point in the war, the Tripolitans were running low on gunpowder. If the Corsairs managed to capture the Intrepid, there was a strong possibility of extending the war. Preble had the Nautilus escort her to within 700 yards of the western part of the harbor. The Intrepid sailed into the harbor under the cover of darkness. As the Nautilus watched from a distance, they heard a couple of gunshots, but nothing followed. The crew of the Nautilus waited silently for 10 minutes and only heard the waves splashing on the sides of the ship. At 2147, the Intrepid exploded. This explosion was so powerful that the concussion blast rocked the Constitution, which was six miles away. The crew of the Nautilus kept an eye out for the two escape boats carrying the men from the Intrepid, but they never came. Preble sent three ships into the harbor the following morning to find the missing crew. Captain Bainbridge reported the remains of six mangled and burnt corpses lying on shore. The Intrepid exploded well before the Bashaw's castle, and except for a little shaking, didn't damage the target or the Tripolitan fleet. No one really knows what happened. Some historians believe the two shots heard before the explosion ignited the gunpowder. Some believe there was an accidental spark, and some believe the crew lit the fuse early when they noticed the Tripolitan boarding party approaching. Preble's final mission as the Commodore of the fleet had failed. The following day, Commodore Samuel Barron replaced Preble. The Secretary of the Navy was hoping Preble would take the role of second-in-command, but his pride wouldn't let him, and he refused the role. Before Preble headed home, he spent a lot of time with Barron and Eaton. All three of them were very eager to kick off Eaton's plan to help Hamet. Everyone was still on board with the plan, but it was time for Preble to go, so he started his journey back to the United States. Before he left, his officers presented him with a signed scroll filled with their thanks and admiration. Preble did a fantastic job as a third Commodore. He established peace with Morocco and he won battles that helped change the tide of the war. It was an important chapter in his career.
When Preble arrived in Washington, D.C. on March 4, 1805, he received a hero's welcome. The president welcomed him as an honored guest. The Secretary of State threw a party for him, and Congress ordered a medal struck for his likeness. I'll have a picture up on historyofthemarinecorps.com if you want to take a look at this medal. Even the Pope made a public declaration and stated, quote, The United States, though in their infancy, had in this affair done more to humble the anti-Christian barbarians on the coast than all of the European states had done for a long series of time, unquote. But despite Preble's success, naval battles weren't really cutting it. To end this war quickly, they needed support from land, and Eaton's plan looked like the best option. Barron came prepared for the strategy. He received orders to prepare for a joint amphibious landing. This joint operation called for more ships, and the combination of amphibious landings and additional ships meant more Marines. On March 7, 1804, Commandant Burroughs submitted his resignation due to poor health shortly before Congress communicated this need to the Marine Corps. One day short of a year later, Burroughs passed away. He was initially buried in the Presbyterian Cemetery in Georgetown and later moved to Arlington on May 12, 1892. Burroughs established many of the Marine Corps institutions we know and love today, with the Marine Band being one of the most well-known. He is also responsible for setting the standards of personal and professional conduct of Marines, values that are still held to this day. Lieutenant Colonel Commandant Franklin Wharton replaced Burroughs on April 1, 1804. By the end of June, the Marine Corps' strength was 389, 25 officers and 364 enlisted. Barron's plan called for more Marines, but Wharton had three officers and about 100 enlisted in New Orleans, involved with the Louisiana Purchase. His new role as Commandant would come with the challenge of finding Marines to support this mission. Marines left Philadelphia, stopped by Baltimore to pick up additional men, and arrived in Washington on the 25th with 52 enlisted men and Lieutenant Presley O'Bannon. Congress amended the 1801 Act that stipulated the active duty strength of the Marine Corps. The amendment stated that Marines are deemed necessary by the President of the United States. However, Congress did not authorize increasing the size of the Marine Corps. In the true spirit of doing more with less, Marines had to make do with their current strength. Five ships sailed towards the Mediterranean, each containing about 50 Marines on board. On the President was Captain Anthony Gale and 2nd Lieutenant Presley O'Bannon. William Eaton's plan received approval, and he was authorized to find Hamet, begin negotiations, and raise an army to support the upcoming battle. In November 1804, Eaton sailed for Egypt. He brought with him two Navy midshipmen and eight Marines, one of whom was Lieutenant Presley O'Bannon. Although small, the Marines were vital in this mission. Eaton needed men who knew how to fight on land and at sea. The U.S. Marines were the only resource he had for this need. O'Bannon was in charge of the Marines. This thin, red-headed man was apparently a very energetic violin player who could dance very well. O'Bannon was also a born fighter. As a child, 
the Marine's reputation for being tough and tenacious was attractive to him. The promise of adventure was the icing on the cake and inspired him to serve. O'Banion wholeheartedly supported Eaton's plan. The small crew arrived in Alexandria, Egypt on November 29th to find Hamet. By this time, his brother Yusuf had sent assassins to take care of his brother, so Hamet went into hiding. When Americans landed in Egypt, they didn't know where he was, so Eaton used his diplomacy to build a relationship. At the time, Egypt had two factions, the Albanian Turks and the Mamelukes. Eaton made friends with the locals by offering them candy and coffee. Through these actions, he was given information that pointed upriver. Eaton heard that Hamet teamed up with the Mamelukes, which was potentially a problem. The Mamelukes and the Ottoman Empire were enemies. Traveling through Ottoman territory was difficult, but Eaton's expedition jumped on a ship and he sailed the Nile in search of Hamet. Throughout their journey, they saw carnage everywhere. There were destroyed villages, burnt farmland, and groups of locals were offering to help any army that would protect them from future plundering. Eaton eventually earned a visit with the governing leader of Cairo. Americans received a warm welcome, and they were marched into Egypt as celebrities. The viceroy asked many questions about America. He was very interested in the size of the country, the date we won our independence, countries we were at war and at peace with, and our commerce. After his curiosity was satisfied, he dismissed everyone except for Eaton and a translator. Eaton filled him in on why Americans were there. He stated that they were looking for Hamet and explained their mission to restore him to his rightful position in Tripoli. Eaton was able to convince the ruler that his mission was a noble one, and couriers were sent across the land to search for Hamet. It took weeks, but on January 3rd, the search party located Hamet. He replied to Eaton's message and headed off to join the expedition. On February 5th, Hamet and Eaton finally reunited. Hamet brought 21 men with him and started to recruit an army of loyal Tripolitans in Egypt. Eaton self-promoted himself to general and stipulated in their agreement that he was the commander-in-chief for this expedition. Apparently, this type of behavior wasn't out of character for Eaton. As a new self-appointed general, Eaton sent a request to Commodore Barron and requested a hundred Marines. The request was denied, and Eaton had to be content with eight. O'Bannon met up with Eaton on February 19th and brought with him a sergeant and six other Marines. O'Bannon and Eaton headed back to Alexandria and recruited every mercenary they could find. Hamet set up camp 11 miles outside of the city, and soon it was filled with men willing to take up arms. There were over a dozen nations represented in this army. Some of the soldiers included the bastard son of Marie Antoinette's chambermaid, cannoneers from Greece, Bulgarian barbarians, and ex-Serbian soldiers. The Marines tried to instill some discipline into this new army, but they had very little success but Lieutenant O'Bannon was able to find a common interest between every man in camp, his violin. He would play often and dance, which fascinated the army. Eaton also purchased 190 camels for cavalry at the cost of around $11 per camel. 
There were a lot of problems with this army. Religion divided the camp into two groups, Muslims and Christians. Money was stolen, fights broke out, and men deserted. But the plan was still on. The original strategy was for the USS Argus to be a troop carrier. However, this changed, and now she would be supported by the Nautilus and the Hornet in the attack on Dern. On March 4th, Eaton sent a copy of the convention signed by him and Hamet, stating that the camp will march for Dern. On March 8, 1805, Eaton, the Marines, and about 500 men started their march across the Libyan desert in one of history's most astonishing military expeditions. They embarked on a 500-mile trek, 805 kilometers for our metric friends. Yusuf was aware of his brother's plan and started raising an army of his own. Yusuf took the family members of his officers hostage just to ensure loyalty. The Americans' journey would not be an easy one. Just three days into the expedition, the camel wranglers demanded payment in advance. Hamet did nothing about the situation, so Eaton threatened to abandon the mission altogether. This threat caused the camel wranglers to bite their lip, and the voyage continued across a desert, averaging about 20 miles per day. It was a tough voyage. 100 degrees during the day and freezing at night. They marched alongside the ocean, which meant rain was sometimes blown in from the coast and soaked the men and all of their supplies. Throughout the march, the camel wranglers constantly made new demands. As they continued to move along their route, they would encounter multiple Bedouin camps. Men from these camps would join the marching army, and soon the fighting strength grew to 600 to 700 men. They were also followed by around 1,200 Bedouin families. A month into the march, food supplies started to run low. They only had six days left of rice. The army slaughtered a camel for its meat, and Marines sold their brass buttons to local Bedouins for dates, but this was hardly enough food for hundreds of men. The army harvested food along the route, but it wasn't nearly enough. The Arab mercenaries refused to march any further until Eaton sent a message to the Argus and he returned with confirmation that fresh supplies awaited their arrival. On top of the food shortage, Hamet heard a rumor that his brother sent an 800-man army towards their location. This rumor caused him to panic, and he agreed with the Arab mercenaries and wanted to halt the march. Eaton disagreed with this approach and refused to stop the marching army. This disorder caused a revolt against the Americans. Eaton anticipated an attack from the mercenaries and stationed O'Bannon and his seven marines to guard the supply tent. Over 200 mercenaries charged at the Americans, waving their swords. As the mercenaries charged, O'Bannon gave his command and the marines raised their rifles and aimed at the charging Arabs. Eaton ordered O'Bannon to hold fire until the last possible instance. The marines stood their ground and at the last second, the charging army turned around and sheathed their swords. But some of them raised their rifles at the Marines, and one of the mercenaries gave the command fire. But fortunately, no one fired a shot. The Marines didn't budge during this whole ordeal, and one of Hamet's officers came to the rescue stating, For God's sake, do not fire. The Christians are our friends. 
Some of Hamet's officers stood by the Marines with their sabers drawn, preparing to fight alongside them. The action by these officers de-escalated the tension, and Eaton was able to avoid a full-blown mutiny. Only after the mercenaries agreed to continue their march, Eaton distributed rations, and the camp was peaceful for the rest of the night. O'Bannon was credited with avoiding what essentially would have been a slaughter. Hamet shared these thoughts, and he embraced O'Bannon with respect and gave him the nickname, The Brave American. By the following morning, the army was up and started their march at 0530. The short supply of rations started to take its toll. Men were too weak to march, and animals were starving. Their progress slowed, and 20-mile days turned into 10. As they progressed, the rumors of another revolt reached Eaton. This time, the Christians were joining the Arabs and were about to attack Eaton's tent. Just in the nick of time, the messenger returned, and he carried the news that the Argus was waiting off the coast with food and supplies. The vibe of the mutineers did a complete 180, and Eaton regained support from the army. The troops marched to Bomba, and the Argus sailed into port, delivering food and supplies. The army set up camp and feasted for a week as they healed from their long journey. As the troops rested, Eaton received a letter from Yusuf. It said that if Americans continued to support his brother's army, he would execute the Philadelphia prisoners. Yusuf wasn't necessarily worried about the approaching army, but he was specifically concerned about United States Marines. He had witnessed Marines in battle, and he understood their effectiveness. On April 19th, Yusuf interrogated Dr. Cowdery. Cowdery was an American prisoner who was on board the Philadelphia, and Yusuf questioned him on the number of Marines the United States had. Cowdery lied, and he said that there were 10,000 Marines ready to fight and over a million militiamen prepared to fight for the liberty and rights of their countrymen. This information worried Yusuf, and Cowdery was sent back to his room. Although these numbers were exaggerated, the Secretary of State James Madison was planning on sending additional forces to support this mission. He sent the frigate John Adams with 600 men and nine gunboats, each with 20 men. Two bomb vessels would sail a month later towards Tripoli. While Eaton's army was resting, he sent a letter to the governor of Dern. His message assured the governor that the United States did not want territory, and the purpose of this attack was to reinstate the nation's rightful leader. Eaton promised fair compensation for any supplies given, but the governor wouldn't cooperate, and he sent a letter back to Eaton with a simple message of four words. My head or yours. On April 25th, Eaton prepared to march, but was faced with